0: Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of But I Digress. And today, I'm very fortunate to be uh, with BJ Beitelman, who is a writer and teacher who lives in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, He's published a novel called John the Revelator and a collection of short fiction called Communion, as well as two collections of poetry in order to form a more perfect union. And the other is called Americana, and they're all published by Black Lawrence Press. His stories and poems have appeared in many literary magazines. He's received many fellowships. TJ currently directs the creative writing program at the Alabama School of Fine Arts in Birmingham. TJ, thanks so much for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm I'm, I'm honored and excited to talk to you.
0: Yeah, it's exciting. I'm really, I'm really jazzed about this. So, you know, the thing that pops to my head right away is people think um, that if they're writers, they imagine themselves having this, like, or maybe I, I'm alone, but I think this is reflected in the popular culture. You've got this cozy relationship with an editor. You're taking out to lunch at white tablecloth restaurants, or you're told by your close friend slash editor that you have to get your head out of your ass, or you know. But from behind a very big desk, and after you've made the millions, and they've given you millions in advances, and you have this like ongoing relationship, but you and so you have an ongoing relationship with a publisher, but they're an indie press, Black Lawrence. They could probably take you out to In-N-Out Burger. So can you talk about your relationship with Black Lawrence and um, how it matches up with like the aspirations you had um, and I still have for your, prof- you know, your, your ambitions as a writer?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a happy accident, I think. Um, you know, I, I got my MFA back in 2001. It's hard to remember now um and then i just kind of labored for a decade still doing my thing and and getting you know a little bit of success here and there but nothing nothing large scale and um i won a contest that was sponsored by black Lawrence press and that was it was an interesting um time when that happened because i was literally at a writer's conference in New England that I guess shall not be named, Um, but it's a famous one and it was a great experience, but I was also bewildered and overwhelmed and felt very small at that conference and um, literally got the email on the last day of that conference that I'd won that little, not little, I mean, now it's a big chapel contest. And that was, a really great shot in the arm at the time. I had no idea that I would have a, you know, what is now over a decade long relationship with Black Lawrence Press. Um, I was just sort of doing the thing that everybody does, and that is just like throwing stuff up against the wall and writing checks and sending um, manuscripts out to try to get, um, you know, published in contests or whatever and getting that you know long string of of anonymous rejections. Um, and I, you know, I I I got I got one. I won, you know, and um so Black Martin's press, they were relatively new at that point. Um they've now established themselves as I think a really excellent you know, independent press of of um, You know, they've just done a lot of really cool stuff over the years. And Diane Gettle, who's the executive editor there, is just a really forward thinking, smart, um, savvy business person um, and also has really good taste, if I do say so myself. (laughs) And um, anyway, yeah, right. Um, So anyway, I mean, I didn't really imagine that it would be a relationship, but the way she operates is once you're once you're in, you, you have a little bit of a back road to, um, to, to getting more stuff published. And she's all about relationships. And, um, she, you know, I just was, I just lucked into this one really. I mean, that's, and I think, you know, everybody lucks into everything, Yeah. you know, really, when it comes down to it, everybody looks into everything. And I lucked into a good relationship with Diane and with black Lawrence and, um, you know, they've published several of my books over the years. And, um, but it's not, there's no white tablecloths. Um, you know, um, I get like my royalty checks of like $38 a year, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not what I, um, envisioned when I started my MFA program and wanted to quote unquote, make a name for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's been, um, I don't know, in a way it's been something, uh, you know, I hesitate to say better because that sounds like, you know, um, I don't know. It sounds like, uh, you're trying to pretend like you didn't care to be a famous writer,
2: you know, and I
1: did, and I still do, you know, but, um, what I got was something I didn't expect, and it's something that's been really, really wonderful. you know, And it's translated into not just publishing books, but, you know, their manuscript consultation program I've been involved with. and that's been just an incredible experience connecting with a lot of writers, particularly writers outside of what I call the literary-industrial complex, um, which I, I define as just kind of an MFA like model mm-hmm. which I'm a product of um but that program the consultation program that BLP does has put me into contact with writers of all stripes from all over the place who by and large I mean they're just trying to tell a story you know and yes they have aspirations and they have dreams the same kind of dreams that I had you know and still have you know of being famous writers but um what they're trying to do is tell a story and and make a connection with a reader you know and um it's been fun to be that reader for them so
0: and so do you ever think about um the literary industrial complex and your you know belonging to it i mean do you ever think to yourself well you know Maybe I could have a better-paying gig and more nor- more notoriety, or no, you know, if I were at Johns Hopkins or Sarah Lawrence or Columbia or you name it, right? I mean, does that? Yeah. Do you ever think well, about that?
1: Yeah, I think about that. I thought about that a lot um, for a while, and um, first of all, that's easier said than done. You know, those jobs are. Um, extremely competitive, and um, you know, not many people can get them, really? You know, that's the thing. Um, when I came out of my MFA, my goal was to be like my professors and to get a tenure track job at Johns Hopkins or Sarah Lawrence or you know, even, you know, Kennesaw State, you know, wherever <laughs> you know. Um, and um, I tried you know, with varying degrees of intensity. And then probably about, I don't know, it might be seven or eight years ago now, you know, I, it was a time when a couple of my books were coming out and I was like, you know, now's the time. I'm going to make that leap to, to that job, that tenure track, higher ed, literary industrial complex job. Now's the time. And I kind of carpet bombed and nothing happened, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that was instructive. You know, um, it's, it's a, it's a very competitive market and what that, that, that required of me to sort of take stock and say, okay, well, here I am, you know, quote unquote, mid career. And the path that I had thought I wanted, which was to be like all my creative writing professors in undergraduate and graduate, take that path. That's that's what I wanted to do. That was the aspiration. And that probably isn't going to happen. And is that okay? And um, it turned out that it was. Um, the teaching job that I have at a public magnet school for the arts in Birmingham, Alabama, which I've, I'm finishing up my 20th year doing that, um, has fit me to a T, you know? Um, and the, you know, Black Lawrence Manuscript Consultation Program. You know, am I teaching in, a, in an MFA program? No. Am I working with serious writers who are writing books? and who run the gamut of people who are completely disconnected from academia to people who have PhDs in creative writing? Yes, I am. You know, so no, I'm not teaching in the low residency MFA program of you know Warren Wilson College. Um, I'm not at Iowa. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not. All these things that I sort of thought I wanted to do, but practically speaking. Am I reading serious work in progress? Yes. Am I writing? Yes. Um, do I teach creative writing all the time and don't teach comp and don't teach other stuff that I might not want to teach? Yeah, like, like that's that's my that's my experience. So um, again, it's like. I don't want to say, I don't want to come across like, oh, I didn't, I didn't do what I wanted to do, and so it's okay. What I found was better. <laughs> um, that seems disingenuous in some ways, but um, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's true.
2: You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. No, safe, I mean, you know? I I I understand and the, the the tension between those two ideas. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you know, I think from what I'm hearing, you're saying, you know, that those were legitimate dreams of, and, and, and there's a certain sting to not having achieved them. But by the same token, what you have achieved is profoundly satisfying.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, I think it's a reexamination of, okay, well, just how like dysfunctional or unhealthy were those dreams? Like how legitimate were those dreams? you know
2: right
1: um where was that coming from you know and it was i mean I, if i'm honest i mean it just was coming from ego it was right. coming from a place of of needing approval external validation um lots of stuff that you know i have hashed out and am hashing out with my therapist and the people closest to me you know and so um that unexamined emotional territory that was sort of driving me in my 20s and early 30s um, has been examined now, you know, and it doesn't mean I'm not ambitious. It doesn't mean I don't think I'm a good writer. It doesn't mean that um, I wouldn't like to you know, be a late bloomer and in my 60s get that, you know, Pulitzer Prize or whatever. I, I would, and I'm not saying I won't. <laughs> Right but I'm also saying that it's it's way more complicated than I thought it was when I was you know 29 and thought I had everything um, figured out, you know I didn't you know, really didn't.
0: Well, I think one of the things that we probably overestimate when we're young and um, uh, or, or underestimate is the um, I guess we, we, we overestimate the amount of um, personal charm and talent that we have uh, that will get us that notoriety and we um, underestimate the amount of luck that it takes to just meet the right person at the right time with the right manuscript. Yeah, Um, for sure. And, you know, um, so I've got 10 years on you and um, in many ways I'm, I'm in the same position, right? It's like, I'm not giving up, but by the same token, Um, I've had to come to terms with, you know, the success that I've had and the, you know, the disappointments that I've had. Um, And, you know, accepting that uh, just because it didn't, it hasn't happened the way that I imagined that it would, and that imagining is what defined being a successful writer in my mind when I was in my 20s and 30s. That doesn't mean I'm not a successful writer. It just means right. I'm not a successful writer, in, you know, in that in that way that um, that I had imagined. Right. Um, I want to get back and I, I, to um, to the discussion that we're having about um, about the business side of uh, of your work. So um, you mentioned royalty checks, and um, I'm assuming you don't have an agent. And so my question is assuming I mean assuming that yeah, you don't, don't have an I agent don't. I don't so who do you have anyone look at your contracts or your royalty statements or I mean do you have any kind of or is it just kind of you're hoping that you know you're hoping that they're not making mistakes and you know I'm obviously they're they're're they're, they're, they're not trying to cheat you but um, I mean one thing I learned from from uh, Long ago, was you need an agent just because publishers make mistakes on royalties?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I guess it just hasn't even gotten to that point. Like, um, sure, I, I think you know maybe my royalty check instead of thirty eight dollars could be you know fifty six dollars or even you know one hundred and thirty two dollars, but. The fact of the matter is that you know I write stuff that is going to be read by a handful of people and it's not commercially viable, and so the value of having a relationship with someone like Diane, who is going to keep my books in print. Ad infinitum, to the extent that she can she's not thinking bottom line so. What that does for someone like me is that a book that I published in 2012 is every bit as quote-unquote current as a book that I published in 2018. It's, it's on her website, it's on my website. Pe- somebody can find it, you know? <clears throat> um, and, you know, I'm the type of writer who is going to need a generation to find an audience. You know, um, and by an audience, I mean several hundred people, you know, (laughs) who've read my books, which. I mean. That's okay. (laughs) you know, I'm thinking a lot about audience lately as I take stock. I just turned 50 last October. And as I take stock about this sort of. I don't know, second season of my writing life and professional life and just life life um audience is a big thing like who am i writing for Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know and um you know gertrude stein's you know you're writing for yourself and strangers is sure but like who are those strangers you know and um for me it's it's a hand-to-hand combat sort of thing it's it's i'm trying to find you you know michael hickens you know literally you i'm trying to find you know that one person who i can have this conversation with. which okay you're my people cool that's great that makes me feel good i've looked forward to this conversation for weeks you know and and so it's fun and that's the kind of writing life that i have and i feel lucky to have that i don't have the writing life of you know zadie smith or donna tart who i admire you know, greatly, and who I feel a kinship with too. You know, even though I don't know them and I've never had a Zoom conversation with them, I feel a kinship with them too. Um, but they're in a stratosphere that's different than me, and that's okay too. You know. Um, anyway, that's all. All goes back to to the business of it, and actually, th- that makes me think. Like Donna Tart had Binky Urban was her agent. You know, Binky Urban is like the agent's agent, right? And uh, Donna Tartt got pissed off because she didn't get the right uh, film rights to The Goldfinch, and she fired Big Urban, (laughs) you know? So, you know, it's a question of scale, obviously, but there's always something to quibble over in in the quote unquote business side of it. And I, you know, much much to my wife's chagrin, I think maybe, I just don't think in those terms, you know? Um, It makes me think of that Lewis Hyde book, The Gift. Do You know that book? No. Um, It's had many subtitles, but um, the most recent one, I think, is uh, it's called The Gift, Creativity and the Artist in the Modern World, maybe. And the whole book, it's just an incredible book, but um, the whole book is about the concept of a gift exchange versus a market exchange and how creativity and art from ancient times is really much better suited to a a market a gift exchange excuse me where you know i make this talisman or i write this poem or i sing this song and i give it to you and then you it's yours for a moment but then the exchange is or the 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 contract is you're going to give it to somebody else Mm -hmm. and they're then going to give it to somebody else so it doesn't belong to anybody it, it's in constant circulation um and it's about finding your people it's about a community and it's not that i made this valuable thing and it's worth something so i'll give you this thing this novel and you'll give me you know a two book deal seven figure two book deal you know that's not what it is um, and that resonates with me you know you know i guess it has to because nobody has given me a two book seven figure deal but and i would take it if they did you know but um you know i don't know there's there's some good resonance in that other idea of you know of what art is you know it's a gift exchange
0: well i mean the you know that you can imagine that that's kind of homer's life like that he told these poems to people mm-hmm. who who shared them right and 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 uh it was a pretty small circle back then Right. Um, uh you know i yeah uh, you know <laughs> i used to um uh I used to wonder about what I would have been like if I had been, um, you know, uh, a person living in prehistoric times. Um, but like pretty much me, which is to say, probably not a very good hunter or um, fighter uh, or uh, you know gatherer. Um, but but maybe someone who could tell stories um, and who enjoyed telling stories and thinking. Well, but I would have had to have. I would have to have told really good stories. I probably still would have had to pitch in on the other stuff too. But you know, maybe if like I just pitched in every now and then, but I told really good stories, then then people would let me sit around the fire with them and, and share some mm-hmm. of the food. Right? right. And that was that was kind of like my vision of the way I wanted to interact with my audience is like be good enough <laughs> that they want to um, that they want to share their fire with me.
1: Yeah. Um, But it's also like um yeah, I mean I like that I like that metaphor. And those stories, I imagine, um, were not simply good stories to like entertain people. Um you know, the storytellers were mystics and Mm -hmm. they were, you know, um they they sort of propagated, I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, but they were purveyors of of the culture um, and the history and the stories that they were telling were ones that meant a lot and that that were in themselves a gift exchange that was handed down to the ancestors you know from the ancestors to the you know younger generations and those younger generations would become ancestors who handed it down to younger generations and it was. Um, you know, I mean, I, this is a romantic idea. I wasn't there. So who knows? Maybe there were fart jokes around <laughs> around the prehistoric campfire, too. I'm sure there were. But um, you know, the role of not just storytellers but stories, I, I have to imagine was somewhat different. And um, the value was profound. And so giving somebody, you know a, a shank of of you know, uh, some sort of prehistoric beast or some nuts that somebody had gathered was small compensation for what they were doing, you know? And, I, you know, we don't have that kind of veneration of story, I don't think, anymore in our culture, unfortunately, um, it, you know? I think a lot of us turn to stories to numb ourselves, mm-hmm. um, And to distract ourselves, you know, and they can do that, um, but they can also turn you on um, and make life more interesting and complicated and help you transcend the things that you want to um, be numb to, you know.
0: I I feel like a lot of um, speculative writers. Are actually more interested in um, the uh, uh, the more profound elements of of storytelling. I think that's I think it's why yeah. we have a, like this rise of speculative fiction because I think that it's just uh, not just it, but it's a, it's a way of breaking out of um, a pretty sclerotic set of. Um, yeah, we call them genres but they're really just sort of you know boxes that we put writers in okay that's literary this is this is detective this is science fiction this is romance mm-hmm. right and I mean story is just the you know so much bigger than any box you could put it in but I think that this uh, speculative fiction is, is is essentially you know I mean uh, great writing it can be uh, but I think it, 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 its aim is you know higher than um, Than that sort of numbing thing that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, I think it's that mythic impulse to um, filter the big questions through um, through stories, through narrative, and um, you know, it's not too much of a stretch. For some reason, this morning, I was thinking about um, Carl Jung <laughs> um, and his um, Red book, I guess it's called his his dream journal, um, which really was a document of like his break, you know, with reality. You know, he had he had a really um, difficult time in his life, difficult season in his life where he thought he was going crazy, Um, and you know what resulted is this journal that. Of, of dreams like and nobody wants to read about your dreams but if you're called Jung Jung I guess I guess they do and hmm. at any rate that impulse um, of trying to understand or trying to um, well, I'm losing my train of thought I guess with it but the idea that the fabulous and the strange and the weirdness um, of consciousness, and the stories that we can, um, the stories that we can come up with that are really, really strange, um, are the ones that help us access that deeper consciousness. I guess you know. Um, and so whether that's you know um, Blade Runner or you know. Um, the book of daniel <laughs> you know in that in that weirdness we're able to sort of um, access something deeper and time more timeless and elemental um mm-hmm. yeah so i think the the weirder stuff is probably um the channel
2: you know
1: nowadays because i mean realistic Fiction. We're so interested in what's what really happened to you, and particularly right now. And I think that's good. I think that's fine. I think what really happens to people, you know, I mean, ask anybody in Ukraine right now, right? You know what what is really happening to you, and it's pretty um, apocalyptic and crazy, you know. So. What really happens to people can be, you know, really um, profound and compelling and interesting and arresting, um, you know. But it can also be uh, banal, you know, or mm-hmm. it can also be um, just sort of reinforcing our confirmation bias, you know. Um, and so I think we have to. Turn to more imaginative um, ways of making stories to break us out of that pattern.
0: Now, you were talking earlier about finding the audience, finding your audience, and it being hand-to-hand combat. Um, You do you um, do you use social media? Do you do you do you go in when you finish a book and? you know, it's getting ready to be published, do you sit down with your editor and talk about marketing distribution or any of those things? Or is that just kind of like uh, either not your concern or just something that is feels like tilting at windmills? Um, maybe a little bit of, of the latter.
1: Um, I've, I've tried to do social media. Um, I started a blog back in 2007 when that was a relatively, you know, newish thing, um, and I've been on Twitter and you know various platforms. And it's just not—it's
2: not natural to me. I—I um, um, I sort of.
1: Behave as if I have an audience mm-hmm. on social media platforms, and I don't. And so, that I don't think is is the right way for people who have like 300 followers. If if you ha- if you don't have a lot of followers, there's a actual strategy that you need to use, and that is a connection strategy. Um, that I'm not that interested in, um, and I'm not all that good at it. And so, what I end up doing is tweeting or whatever, as if people are already paying attention to me and they're not, you know? Um, So that hasn't done too much for me. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, a small press like Black Lawrence Press, they have limited resources. Um, They're doing a lot, I think, to try to equip writers with the um, resources. And the information that they need to be good at authorship. And I'm trying to avail myself of that. But that too is also not something that comes naturally to me. Mm -hmm. Um and so, you know, I feel a little bit derelict in my duties in that regard. Um, but that's kind of a sad state of affairs, you know. I mean, I don't know. I feel like if Raymond Carver had to tweet, he'd be screwed, you know?
0: <laughs> I, or it would most... be some of the most interesting tweet storms ever.
1: Well, you're right. At, at a certain stage of his life, maybe, yeah, for sure. But like, I don't know, all the, all the writers that I admire the most don't have that. Like I mentioned Donna Tartt and Zadie Smith. I've read interviews with them where they pointedly and over and over again say, that they could never survive if they had social media, they would just be completely distracted. That it would be this rabbit hole that they go down, and I've experienced that. Um, and I'm not on social media really at all anymore. And it's just because of that. It's like, okay, well, if Donna Tart and Zadie Smith and Cormac McCarthy and every other person is not does not have a Twitter feed, well. I'm not them, but I admire them. So maybe I'm just not going to have Twitter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to write my own stuff. And again, going back to the hand-to-hand, I mean, the, the connections that I have more and more are with other writers who are writing manuscripts that they want to get published. And um, those are the meaningful contacts that I have. Um, and, and that's one-on-one and it's hand-to-hand.
0: And you know, so that was going to be my next question to you was like, what is the meaning of community to you as a writer? How important is the, uh, an artistic community in your view?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm an introverted person by nature, and that doesn't mean that I don't connect with other people. um It doesn't mean that I don't need those connections. I absolutely do. It means that I need them. Um, Well, one-on-one, that's my best mode, you know, me talking to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in a writing community, the best way that I can connect with another writer is in reading their work. And to some extent they're them reading my work, but I, 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 I prefer the other end. I prefer being the reader. Um, and that's where I connect with other writers the best. And that's where I support other writers the best, too. And that's where I feel inspiration for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, I don't know, there, there's a, um, it has to do with empathy. It has to do with, like, putting on somebody else's, um skin so to speak getting in somebody else's skin if somebody's written a novel or a poem or whatever and i haven't written it it's something i wouldn't write um and i have to inhabit it when i'm reading that way and i have to be that i have to be the person who wrote that which i can't be 100 percent. but i can try and i'm i've discovered and i've been told that i'm relatively good at that and um, it's almost like method acting, <laughs> you know.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, there's a, there's that quality to it, and so I get to be a lot of other writers, and in inhabiting that, and then communicating with that writer, the experience that I had when I was inside their writing, um, you know, that's been a very profound and meaningful way to connect with other people who write, you know. And um, so that's the kind of community that I have, you know, and, and that is, you know, that translates to my, um, my, my day job, you know, I mean, I, I am in a, a community of, of writers, both my colleagues and, and students and, you know, I'm, it's an unusual situation. The students can be there for up to six years. So, um, it's, it's not a one and done type of thing.
2: Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Um, So those relationships build over time. So it's a much more intense, focused, small bore, small scale um, type of relationship or an attitude towards community of writers. It's not large; it's small by nature. It's limited by nature,
0: and that works for me. Do you think that the existence of you know schools not not in the sense of uh, places where people go to study stuff, but schools of thought, right? Like the New York school or the modernists or, you know, name your school, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Does that create, um, I hate to use the term, does that create a market, but that's what it is, right? Does it create a sense of this is the kind of stuff I ought to be reading if I'm interested in books. Um or do you you know, do you think that there's even such a thing as, you know, a school anymore? Yeah, that's a good question. Like um,
1: you said the New York school and that, like if I was in a school, that's like the one I'd want to be in because like literally, because Frank O'Hara and John Ashbury and and then the weirdness of like it was visual art and it was you know Andy Warhol it, it wasn't it wasn't a school you know it was it was so eclectic um and it literally was more about folks who go to the, whatever it was the cedar bar or something you know um it was more place specific um so um now it's I think there is um something in the zeitgeist about like little communities and niches
2: um, and cliques maybe um, but
1: it's i think it's 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 more it's not like um schools and stuff and movements and stuff that you learned in school that can be easily classified and you know Put on a multiple choice test or you know kind of essay test or whatever um i think it, it's a lot more uh like related to you know seo search engine optimization yeah. and all this stuff um it's much more digital and much more algorithmic you know and stuff i don't understand and 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 don't trust um, <laughs> You know, there's some other intelligence that is sort of hurting us into things. And that's obviously not just for writers. That's, you know, that's, that's everything. Um, and so I don't know what that does to art. Um, I, I am um, dubious of what it might do to art, you know. And I think maybe it's because this is, well, I mean, it's good that this is called, but I digress. Um, but maybe it's because it's easy right i mean the algorithm is designed to make things easy for us and particularly to make us to make it easy for us to buy shit you know Mm -hmm. um and to identify us identify ourselves right the algorithm wants us to identify ourselves and to to um own these different you know um, identities because that's something they can market that's something they can sell to and the more the less eclectic we are the better you know so like the new york school going back to that like you know it's painters it's poets it's performance artists it's drunks it's it's you know barkeeps it's it's this scene that is hard to define like what is the new york school like what does it mean how is frank o'hara like john ashbery They're not. Their poems are not alike. They're not alike at all. Um, But um, there's something connecting them that isn't easily um, understood or um, monetized or something. I don't know. That's a long winded and digressive answer. But I'm distrustful of what, you know, sort of the digital age. Um, how it hurts us generally but artistically in particular, I
0: guess. yeah, I think that's really a profound uh, observation. I was going down a less profound observation, which is you know you you have a group like I mean I love Dave Eggers um, yeah. like, uh, I can't believe that like he'll write a a, a novel about, a to, you know, the most zeitgeisty topic imaginable, and he'll do it in depth and in, you know, amazing ways. Um, and, and he'll always, I mean, I, I have no idea how someone has their pulse, uh, their finger on the pulse uh, as, as well as he does. And I mean, with McSweeney's, like, he's created, you know, a movement, a school. Um, right. To, to which a number of people are are, are attached and um, But that's, that's a, a literal
1: place too in a way like eight twenty six Valencia it's not that's not his whole thing, but like that is he, he yeah, he has been trying to create a scene for like twenty years that is a, an empire right you know
0: and, 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 um, but the thing is that and to your point, I think it is. Well, um, I think that um, for people who are looking for that, you know, and there's only so many books that Dave can write himself, right? I mean, he's really prolific, but there is a limit, but there are then all these other people. So if, you're, if you've read everything that Dave Eggers has, has written, you can always go to McSweeney's and find more stuff that's of the same sensibility, right? It's, right. it's not so much a style, or a, a thematic resemblance, but it is a sensibility, a, a, a sort of an ironic detachment combined with empathy that I, I you know, I think that um, is exemplified by by, by the McSweeney's thing. I, I'm curious because there aren't that many like that, um, you know, uh, schools, and I wonder. It's, I, I don't have I don't I, you know I don't have an answer myself I just wonder um, is it a sign that there's less momentum happening in literary fiction right now or is it a symptom of what you're suggesting which is that we've become um, more and more atomized by uh, by virtue of the algorithms yeah
2: mm-hmm.
1: um. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Um, you know, I feel like, well, I mean, Dave Eggers is a is a example of somebody who has done what I might have wanted to do or something when I was, you know, I, I think we're roughly contemporary, he and I, um, and so when Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius came out. Um, You know, he just sort of took that and ran with it and made, like I said, a kind of like, not just, he's not just a writer, like he's a, he's a sort of cultural phenomenon
2: right?
1: um, and is trying to create, um, um, I don't know, all sorts of um, literary arts um, endeavors. You know that are meaningful to him, and I guess by virtue of the fact that that his first book was such a stratospheric success, he had the sort of wherewithal and resources to do that. Like he could make a twenty six Valencia, and he could just sort of be um, a writer um, and a writerly person and a thinker, a cultural um,
0: phenomenon. You know. Um, when I think about it, he—the person in history—he kind of reminds me of, in a way, is Ford Maddox Ford, because, oh. you know, there's a guy who wrote, you know, obviously, um, a good soldier, um, right. which is, you know, in and of itself a seminal work, but also as the publisher of the American Mercury, he was, the he was the macher, <laughs> um, and. Uh, Uh, yeah, no, I mean, not to get, this is, is definitely digressionary, but, um, I was just curious because, um, you know, you're, you're not the only writer, um, that's been a guest on this podcast who doesn't live in a big city. In fact, um, I think if you think back on it, um, many, many, many do not. Um, and so I've always been interested in the, you know, the community aspect, because community in some way lends itself to these schools or movements. Um, I, having been like a city person most of my life um, until you know eight years ago, um, always imagined that literary life outside of just being you know the computer screen, literary life happened in cafes, which do not exist in places like Yorktown. Um, And if they did, there wouldn't be any other, or very many writers. So, um, you know, how do you have uh, community? And so like, what's the trade-off living um, outside of New York, Chicago, San Francisco, um, Paris, London, right? Um, What's the trade-off and um, what's the benefit? Well, I mean,
1: I don't know i mean maybe, maybe i'll turn that question back on you like so i don't know i don't know your town but i mean it's it's sort of like up upstate right from new york
0: yeah is this true ish ish i mean it's it's okay. it's, 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 it's it's northwest of new york's city um okay. it is in westchester county which is most you know most people think that i live next door to john cheever people but actually it's really kind of rural and um, I, I'm more like, uh, in, a Faulkner-esque outpost of New York City. than. So why did you move there? Uh, because, uh, it's where we could afford and have the sort of, we didn't want, it, we, if we're going to leave the city, the point wasn't to live cheek to jowl with our neighbors. So here we have a little bit of property and, um, uh, there's wildlife and, um, you know, and yet there are, you know, there are neighbors, but, you know, we're not like right on top of each other. So we picked, we, we just kind of like, we went up the Hudson, <laughs> realized that the river towns, you know, Dobbs Ferry and uh, all of that, even Croton, too expensive, plots of land are too small. Um, and we ended up in Yorktown because we could get, you know, basically an acre um, for something, you know, relatively affordable.
1: Mm -hmm. and Um, so okay so but do you romanticize community like is is the problem with Yorktown that there's only a Starbucks or something like there's not yeah pretty much I
0: mean there's right there's 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 no um there's no cafe um there's and, and I mean it's symptomatic of something deeper um, but you know, there are towns around here that 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 have more of a town center and more of a sort of a villagey feel to them. Um, a Croton being, you know, but, but it's a 20-minute drive, and who you know, so that's that's an hour just to go get a cup of coffee, right? Because I mean the, right. you know, when I lived in Manhattan, you know, it's like I go downstairs, I I go to the coffee shop I prefer but there's four of them and I go to the one I prefer because it has a particular vibe to it and I'm there in two and a half minutes and I sit down and I might have a serendipitous encounter with um, a really interesting person right Um, and 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 the the fact of the matter is that um, I never had that serendipitous encounter Right, (laughs) right right great relationships right. with people that I knew and I would set out to meet them and we would you know um, so I'm I'm maybe romanticizing a thing that I realized of course didn't exist but or doesn't exist but I had it in Paris um, and it wasn't with writers because um, I wasn't I was an American and American right there's nothing more insufferable than an American writer in Paris um, but you um, and you don't have anything in common as a writer, you don't really have anything in common with, um, with French writers or uh, Spanish or Italian writers or Russian writers. I mean, you do of course, because you're, you're telling stories, but you know, it, it's completely different traditions. And, and so the idea of having like, a, you can have great friendships, but um, I had the most meaningful artistic relationships I had were with painters and, and sculptors. Um, of all nationalities, but because it wasn't the language. I mean, it wasn't the verbal language, right? So um, it was easy. Um, there, and there was no there was no sense of competitiveness and there was just, it was just it wasn't even a debate. It, 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 it was just um, here's how I you know, here's how I present right. my vision of the world. You know, oh, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, uh, here's another person who has another way of presenting their you know vision of the world. Um, and that I, that did happen, you know, serendipitously, and not necessarily in cafes, because actually we were all too poor to be able to go to a cafe. But, um, like, we would go, there was, um, I remember in the 20th Arrondissement, which is one of the, like, it's the outermost district of Paris, and there was an a African immigrant neighborhood, and in one of the um, uh, Uh, housing structures that you know the government housing that was there um, the people there had created a kitchen a communal kitchen and for you know basically a buck you could get a plate of rice and chicken um, or mutton and rice and some gravy and maybe some vegetables and you sat down at a long table with a bunch of other people um, and uh, you know w- w- one of the one of the painters who was squatting in an abandoned building told me about this and so we you know he and his friends and, and 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 I would 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 meet for lunch there and then we would go and we would like go back to the abandoned building where they had their studios and we would talk but it was like um and you know that was um really important to my development as a as a writer um to have that kind of confrontation of, view, of, of visions, not in, in confrontation in an argumentative way, just like, just like, Conference, bam, bam, yeah. bam, all these different ways of seeing the world, right? Um, and yeah. I mean, you know, here it's just pickup trucks, you know.
1: Well, okay. So here's what I would say. First of all, what you're describing sounds a lot like the New York School, you know in the sense that it's it's not-
0: It's Larry Rivers and and, and Kenneth Koch.
1: Right, right, exactly. And it's about that confluence as opposed to, well, so when I think of community, particularly community of writers, that calls to mind something different than what you're talking about. Um, What you're talking about is an energy that you can access. And you can access that in this intense way with a community of other creative people, other hungry people, literally and figuratively. But you can also access that by being in a city of 8 million people um, who are, you know, running around like their heads are on fire, you know, or in that cafe where you don't have An actual interaction with someone, um, or you know, sort of you talk to someone, but you're there and you're, you know, for lack of a better word, you're vibing off of that whole thing. So that um, energy is very intense in places like New York and Paris and et cetera. But there's an energy in Yorktown, there's an energy in Birmingham,
2: there's an energy
1: in you know, I live in a town called Alabaster and we're moving to a town called Fort or a neighborhood called Forest Park. There's different energies in those places mm-hmm. and they're not good or bad. They just are. And they are influencing you as a creative person. And so I can imagine I'm going to completely project on Yorktown, but there's a space. There's a white space. There's a there's a quietness that's happening to you that is valuable. <laughs> right. Um, the fact that you're only around pickup trucks, the fact that you are, um, you know, not in your element, the fact that you are sort of like a ghost—I'm projecting onto you. I'm stuff that I feel. You're sort of like not there and not there, and that's a useful thing for a writer. You yeah. know, that that's a that's a useful feeling for a writer for sure. Um, so those things can be completely um, nutritious for your creative life. Just because you're not like, you know, in the mix, you are in a mix, it's a different mix.
0: Right, so for you, yeah, being where you are is as productive as if you were in New York or Chicago or any of those places?
1: I mean, I can't say that for 110% because I haven't been in those places. I haven't lived in those places. I've gone to those places and felt like, whoa, this is so cool. And this is so different from what I experienced. And this is really energizing my creative life. Um, but I haven't lived there, so I can't really compare.
0: You that. live near you, you, you. live close to DC, right? You grew up?
1: I grew up there. I was I was sort of latent creatively, though, when I lived there. So I lived there until I was like 18. And then I went to college in southwestern Virginia, um, which was its own. That was a a very intense place for Mm me um, and very much fed my creative self. But it wasn't didn't have a lot of people in it. And it was, you know, I went to Virginia Tech, which is not known for at the time, it wasn't known for writing, although there there's a ton of tremendous writers there and they have a really great creative writing program now. And I learned a lot there um, from those people. But anyway, it's an engineering school, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a land grant engineering school in the middle of nowhere. But um, it's, you know, it, it has a vibe too. And that definitely got into my bones, you know. The high lonesome of the mountains you know definitely got into my bones so um but yeah no i i wasn't like anywhere near in the mix like i, I was a suburban kid you know like i i my dad was a, a lawyer for the government so i would occasionally get into dc for those reasons you know I, I would occasionally go to georgetown basketball games as a kid but most most of it was you know you know John Hughes, you know, like in the, in the eighties, you know, I might I might as well have been, you know, the suburbs of Chicago, you know, wasn't any different. Um, listening to the top forty radio, like I wasn't a very interesting kid, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, I can't ever claim to, um, being, putting myself in the mix of where I sort of had to rub elbows with other creative people who were very ambitious and um I mean the closest I came to that was when I went to an MFA program in Tuscaloosa Alabama which you know there were a lot of great writers there um and I I got a lot out of that experience but it's you know it's not Columbia you know where you went it's not Iowa for sure um I didn't even apply anywhere else I applied to one MFA program (laughs) um so I don't
0: know. Well, yeah. let me just tell you how stupid I was. I, I also um, I actually applied to two. Um, I applied to Columbia and I applied to Johns Hopkins, and that was it. Well, <laughs> two good ones. If you're going to apply to two, those are two good ones. I got turned down though by though, Johns Hopkins. Huh? I got turned down by Johns Hopkins.
1: Well, that's no there's no shame in that. That's a, That's you know, that's a story to program. Um, but, it, and it was a different time too. Like, I mean, now I have students, former students who are applying to MFA programs and it's like, they're trying to apply to law school or something. It's impossible to get in. <laughs> and it was not that way. I mean, um, I mean, yes, Johns Hopkins, Iowa, you know, those, those were super competitive, but it just was a different animal back then. Um, and, you know, I blame the literary industrial complex for that too, like, um, you know, creating a sense of, well, I don't know, that's kind of a rabbit hole, maybe we should go down, but a sense that, you know, a graduate program in creative writing is um, a path to gainful employment or something, or, um, I don't know, it was never presented that way to me, you know, and I fear that it is presented that way now. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm, I'm out of the loop, so I could be
0: talking I, out I, of my behind. I don't know how it's presented now. I I agree with you, though. I mean, um, it was presented to me as, well, if you're really out of your mind, you could do this, right? <laughs> um,
1: yeah. If you got if you got a lot of time on your hands and nothing nothing else to do, you know, go for it.
0: So. And, One of the things I I enjoy asking people on this podcast um, as we wind up is um, what is your relationship? What is your physical relationship to books? Like, are you a dog earer? Do you use bookmarks? Do you write in your books? What's what's your deal with books?
1: Yeah, um, I don't, um, I might dog ear. I don't write in books. and my relationship to them is like, um, well, I'm a very slow reader, first of all. And I also reread books a lot. Um, and so like, I don't have a huge library. I have some some sacred texts that I always go back to. Um, and like, for instance, I'm thinking of the, I believe it's the 1991 Best American Short Stories, which uh, was taught in my very first fiction writing workshop with Ed Falco, who is probably best known for um, writing, ghostwriting a, a Godfather um, episode, not episode, but like a book of the Godfather um, after Mario Puzo died um but anyway um that book is it's it's the artifact of that book Mm -hmm. like just seeing that book and it's now it was red it's now pink um it's it's very um you know it's well well worn and well used and i've i've made copies out of it because i've taught a lot of the stories um in it um, and so it's it's not in good shape at all, you know. But there's a there's a sort of sacred text quality to that. Just seeing that book reminds me why I'm the writer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can I can feel those stories without even reading them. You know, Rick Bass's The Legend of Pig Eye, uh, Charles Baxter's The Disappeared, um, Elizabeth Graver's um, The Body Shop. These are stories that they are foundational to how I work and what I think of as a good story. And, um, and just, just not even holding that book, but like seeing that book just reminds me why I'm a writer.
0: Mm -hmm. Rick Bass was a fantastic writer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story too. And and what's great about those, those books, I, I I'm assuming they still do it. Um, in the back in the bio section they'll also have a little blurb from the writer about the story itself you know mm-hmm. and he's got this great you know explanation of how that story came to be and how it got rejected by people and how it got accepted but they were too sort of heavy-handed and how they wanted him to re- to edit it and so he said screw you i'm not going to do that and then i'm going to do this instead because i'm pissed off at what you said so i'm going to go in this completely other direction. And then it's really cool evidence that, you know, even Rick Bass, who was at that point, Rick Bass. I mean, he was, he was Rick Bass then. Um, Even, even he, you know, has to deal with the kind of like vagaries of being a writer and getting your work published and all that stuff. Um, But yeah, that's a great story. The Legend of Pig Eye, it's a great story about, Well, there's two endings to that story, which is one of the great features of it, but it's also just Rick Bass. So there's this um, visceral sensory quality to that story. It's a story about boxing. Um, So that, anyway, I love that story.
0: You know, and it's in a way so appropriate that you bring up Rick Bass um, in the context of, uh, of, of this podcast and what we, First, we're talking about because, um, you know, yeah, uh, you said Rick, in 1991, Rick Bass was Rick Bass. Um, and I remember 1991 really well because that was the year that my, uh, uh, my collection of short stories was published. Um, and a number of my stories were published in the quarterly alongside Rick. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: and um, it was... Um, You know, you had a feeling in those days, (laughs) those days, Um, 30 years ago, right, that that, um, uh, there were some really special writers uh, uh, at at the craft, Um, and by the same token, you already had the sense that those special writers weren't necessarily going to be making a ton of money at it. Um, And that wasn't even the, you know, the the point for me anyway, it was never make a ton of money. It was making enough money to be able to do just that. Just that, right. And, and that's, um, uh, that was never in the cards for me. Uh, And I don't know that it was in the card. One of the interesting things about doing this podcast is discovering that it's really not been in the cards for most of us. And that includes people who've had bestsellers
1: right yeah i I liked i i've I've listened to several of your podcasts and like them a lot and and hearing from rick moody Mm. that it's all about freaking health insurance man (laughs) you know like i i need health insurance for my family so i need a day job and i'm rick moody who's you know sold stuff to hollywood
2: you know right
1: um so that's that's you know super helpful for for people to hear you know um it's funny, my wife, who is not from the literary industrial complex at all, and I highly recommend uh, writers marry outside of, yeah. outside of it, you know, it's very helpful and it's very grounding. Um, and she's read my work and, it, you know, it's like, you know, she she gets it from the sense of like, I can see that people would like this, but it's not her cup of tea. And so early in our relationship, she referred to my writing as a hobby. And I, th- I was like, "Whoa, what, how can you say that? That's so offensive. Um, but as I get older and life happens, that's such a, w- it's a wonderful way of looking at it. It's, it's, or maybe a, maybe a nicer, uh, a, 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 an easier on the ego word is avocation. So uh-huh. I, I always thought it was a vocation and I, thought of that in the terms of like professional but then also this sort of religious calling you know but an application is something different from that it's something you're passionate about it's something that floats your boat something that moves you but it's outside and it goes back to the lewis Hyde thing of gift exchange versus market exchange it's outside of that engine of commerce
0: you know it's more about who you are you know, know, something just occurred to me, which is that it's very similar to if you're a political activist. I mean, some political activists eventually become president of the United States, but right, but there's only been the like forty odd of those, right? Right. Um, meanwhile, everyone else is still active in politics, care about politics, are working in their communities to, you know, improve community in the way that they see it, right? Um, most of most of us have day jobs, um, but, right. you know, and the funny thing is, like, I would never consider myself a politician, even though I've, you know, spoken at board of education meetings and, uh, you know, in support of diversity and inclusion, <laughs> just to be clear. Right. Uh, 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 so, you know, I am active politically, but I'm not a politician. Um, and you know, it's sort of, there's a parallel with like being a writer, right? I mean, I feel passionately about that too, as, as, you, as you put it, right? Um, it's not, um, and I do consider myself a writer, but it took me actually until very recently to come to terms with the fact that um, uh, even though I don't make my living as a fiction writer, um, I'm a writer by virtue of the fact that, well, I, I do write for a living, um, yeah. and I've had fiction published, so I'm a writer, right. just not the way I had envisioned it, because I did envision you know, um, the literary equivalent of being a, at least a senator.
1: Right. Well, and that's, the good thing about writing, though, Michael, is that it is a longitudinal pursuit. So, the aforementioned Cormac McCarthy, I think he's got a book coming out. Dude's eighty-eight years old.
0: Two books coming out. Two,
1: right? Two, exactly. Yep. Two books. He's eighty-eight. Now he's Cormac McCarthy, but you know, if I mean, you know, you still got 34 years.
0: Yeah. You know? No, no, no. That's absolutely. And um, and longitudinal also in the sense that um, the stuff that came before is you know just as relevant.
2: Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Um, So
0: the last question I have um, is if you you hadn't wanted to be a writer, what would have been your dream vocation? Yeah,
1: um, this is gonna sound odd, um, but it does connect. Um, I probably would have wanted to be a coach um of maybe probably football and um you know because i'm a, a walter Mitty frustrated athlete um and i i i did a little bit of coaching as a as a younger guy um but it's but it's very much like what i do now actually mm-hmm. um you know it's and it's It's about um, the idea of coaching as opposed to teaching is that when you're coaching, yes, you have a position of, you know, let's just say authority, but you're a part of the same team and you're in the same endeavor. And what your job is, is to, to help that person find the better version of themselves, you know. And if you're coaching a team sport, um, you're trying to do that in the context of a bunch of other individuals, and so that they can work in concert together. And what I do as a as a writing workshop leader um, is very much that you know it's about well, it does go back to community too, creating a community, creating a culture. Um, and, um, you know, owning it and um, helping other people own it. So it's a weird thing. But, yeah, there's, there's this other life that I, I feel like I missed out on. I, I, um, I, I yeah, I, I wish I had um, gone down that path. But that's another, that's another path that nobody gets paid money to do that. Like you can look at Nick Saban, he gets eight million dollars a year, but the life of a football coach sucks. Yeah, like you're itinerant. You, most of them leave because it's not a good life. You can't raise a family. It's not a good life.
0: And Um, if you're not Nick Saban, you make crap.
1: Right. You don't make any money at all. Your your job security is terrible, Um, and that's that's it. That's at the highest levels. Like that's if you're coaching you know, pros or high level college. So what if you're coaching, you know, high school or something? Anyway, um, so I guess that just proves that I'm drawn to um, tilting at windmills (laughs) to to go back full circle. I'm drawn to tilting at windmills and and doing, um, you know, pushing towards um, ambitious goals and big dreams and helping other people to do that. and Unfortunately, there's no money in that, Michael. <laughs> there's, there's no money in that.
0: I think, you know, the, the best that um, that we can do um, is either inherit a lot of money, um, or- Which a lot of writers do. Which a lot of writers do, um, or, um, a, you know, make an accommodation with- right. um, with our ambitions, um, with our significant others, um, with our jobs, um, and I think hardest of all, with our own egos, which I think right. you know is has been the the light motif of of this conversation.
1: Right. No, definitely. And and it, yeah, it's always a negotiation. It's always a sort of you know cobbling together of the best um, that you can do at the moment.
0: I'm Michael Hickens, and you've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. If you want to know more about me, please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.